This is OBS Radio, a service of OBS International, a division of Greater Works Business Services. Making, making contact. Making, contact. Making, making, making contact. I'm Monica Lopez, and this week on Making Contact. Nearly two-thirds of all children in the U.S. juvenile justice system are kids of color. That's according to a recent report by the Children's Defense Fund. In this episode of Making Contact, we'll hear from Dr. Chris Henning on the disparities faced by black youth in the juvenile justice system. Dr. Henning is the Bloom Professor of Law and Director of the Juvenile Justice Clinic and Initiative at Georgetown University Law Center. And she's the author of The Rage of Innocence, How America Criminalizes Black Youth. I spoke with Chris Henning in early April. Here's that interview. I was wondering if you could start out by telling us what prompted you to write this book. I have been representing children in the nation's capital for the last 26 years. And what is shocking about that is that in that entire time, I have only represented four white children. That's it. Every other child I have represented um, has been African-American. And, you know, for folks who are listening who don't live in the nation's capital might be thinking that either there are no white children in um, Washington, D.C., or that white children don't commit crimes. (laughs) And neither one of those would be true. I mean, we know that children act like children, not only all over the United States, but also all over the world, regardless of their race, regardless of their class. They are impulsive, reactive, sensation seekers. They care what their friends are doing or what they think their friends are doing. And so we see an uptick in delinquent behaviors, and that's considered a part of normal adolescent development. But when you're a Black child, you are criminalized or you are arrested and prosecuted for those behaviors. And it's really hard to do the work representing children as long as I have and not really want to stop and ask the question, why is this happening and what kind of harm are we doing to Black children when we arrest them for normal adolescent behaviors that all of us did when we were kids and that our own kids are doing today? You know, you mentioned um, like a catchphrase that I've heard a lot over the years, right, which is the criminalization of youth. What was really great about your book is that you just sort of made that clear. What does that mean in very practical terms? And I'm wondering if you could maybe even explain Eric's case. Sure. So I opened the book with um, a story about a client that I represented named Eric. Well, we call him Eric for purposes of the book. And so Eric was a 13-year-old boy who was watching TV on a Saturday night, and he sees someone with a Molotov cocktail in a movie. And in his 13-year-old brain, he says, oh, that looks cool. He goes into his kitchen, and he grabs a glass bottle, and he begins to pour whatever liquids he could find into that bottle, pine saw, bleach, water, whatever. And he tapes up the bottle 
to make it look like a Molotov cocktail. And here's my favorite part of the story. He grabs a piece of toilet paper and runs that from the inside of the bottle to the out and closes the cap. Now, all of us listening know that that toilet paper is going to run out or burn uh, out before it even reaches the cap. And so he wasn't trying to like really make a Molotov cocktail. It was a toy. He plays with it. Then he like any 13 year old forgets about it. It's a Saturday night. He doesn't want it, the liquid to spill out on his mother's white carpet. So he slaps it in his book bag. He forgets all about it. Monday morning comes, his mother drives him to school and the bottle is still in the bag. He walks in through the front door. He has to put his bag through the conveyor belt, the metal detector. And a school resource officer, a school police officer sees it and says, what is this? to which he immediately responds, oh, that's nothing, you can throw it away. He goes on to class. Little um, does he know that is the beginning of a nine-month ordeal in the local juvenile court. He is arrested, removed from his class, embarrassed in front of his friends, the arson squad is called, and he's carted away and prosecuted for possession of a Molotov cocktail and attempted arson at the school. And, you know, what was really shocking, you know, Monica, is sometime later, I was giving a lecture or giving a talk, I should say. And in that talk, I shared Eric's story. And a white woman came up to me immediately after, and she said, my son did the exact same thing. And I asked her, what happened to him? And she said that he got placed in advanced science classes and advanced chemistry class, you know, and it just, for me, that was a real aha moment, right? That's what I'm talking about. The criminalization of intellectual curiosity, creativity, normal adolescent play, right? And that gets criminalized for a black child and it gets rewarded for the white child. Yeah. When I read that, I was you know, just sort of struck by all the different stories that I've heard over the years that were very similar about just sort of that disparity, you know, or, or even like if it is something more serious, right? Like stealing a bike or stealing a something, right? Usually it's a slap on the wrist and, you know, why don't you learn how to work on bikes, kid? Well, you can, you can work at the bike shop as opposed to, no, you're going to California Youth Authority. Absolutely. And I mean, you're talking about serious offenses. It's hard to have this conversation today in, you know, 2022 without noting the difference between how Kyle Rittenhouse, you know, was treated and viewed in the system versus, you know, a Tamir Rice. You know, we've got like a Kyle Rittenhouse, like 17 year old child who crosses state lines with a gun rifle strapped across his body and is able to walk through public streets. And in very much in this sort of adolescent quintessence adolescent kind of foolish way of thinking that I somehow can go out, you know, with my limited experience with weapons and be of assistance in protecting businesses, right? And because why? Because his friend calls him and says, come on over and, and gives him, you know, the gun, right? The gun that he's paid for. And he then, what happens? He ends up taking two people's lives and severely injuring another. And, you know, the message that 
he wants you to have, meaning the world to have, his mother wants us all to have, and even his lawyer, rightfully so, wants us to have, is that he was an adolescent, really, who just got in over his head and had to act in self-defense, right? And what happens? Indeed, he gets found not guilty, completely exonerated. We've got a a 12-year-old Tamir Rice in Cleveland, Ohio, playing with a toy gun. And in less than three seconds of a 911 call, or next less than three seconds of police arrival on the scene after a 911 call, he shot dead. You know, no questions asked, no, you know, pausing to to see and assess. And the officers kept saying that he looked older than he actually was. <laughs> and that's what the research shows us regarding implicit racial biases and the ways in which it causes police officers and civilians to perceive black children to be significantly older than they are. There is research by Dr. Philip Atiba Goff documenting the ways in which folks see or perceive black children as 4.53 or 4.59 years older than they actually are. That's huge, right? So, you know, you got a Kyle Rittenhouse who's allowed to be a teenager. The absolute, you know, unrestricted privileges of adolescence, right? And then Tamir Rice is shot dead. It's really tragic. You said that U.S. society is uniquely afraid of black children. And I'm wondering if you can maybe get a little bit more into that and talk about how and why that is. Well, America has a very long history of failing to treat children as children, both for some very intentional utilitarian purposes, right? The preservation of resources in our country and the limitation of of, of privilege and power for or, or the exclusion of, of people of color from opportunity, privilege, and power. And so, I mean, if we look all the way back, I mean, in the era of slavery, when the black child was perceived to be the property of the purported master, fast forward to the civil rights era, you see the lynching of a 14-year-old Emmett Till. And the only way one could even think about justifying such a tragic treatment of a child is to claim that he was a threat, a threat specifically to a white woman for whistling at a white woman, right? And so it's these ways in which you justify slavery, you justify lynchings, which are really about the preservation of power and resources and taking advantage of of Black folks, but you do that by demonizing right, in some very explicit and intentional ways that black boys and black children in particular are a threat to white America. You fast forward to 1990s, and what do we see? We saw a temporary uptick in crime in our country, and politicians recognized that they could manipulate the stereotypes that associated blackness with criminality to their political gain and advantage, right? And then we have this, in that 1990s, you've got the super predator myth, this pseudoscientific idea that black, you know, teenagers were going to run amok and rape, maim, and kill, you know, all of America by the year 2000. That never panned out. And in fact, the Princeton professor, John DiUlio, who put forth that pseudoscientific myth, recanted shortly thereafter, but the damage was already done. And one of the ways the damage was done is that this narrative of fear, this demonization, dehumanization, characterization of Black children as a threat 
now lives on in the American psyche, such that an average person who walks in a park and sees a black child playing with a toy, wearing a hoodie, listening to music, the people who see them are automatically afraid. That's a part of the legacy of what is left in the American psyche of these explicit ways in which black children were demonized. So what we see today is, is, is really a part and parcel of that history. So you mentioned the 90s and the racial disparity between like who is being charged amongst young people, black and brown youth, versus the, the lawyers, the judges, that whole system. Has that changed much since the 90s in terms of the balance of who is who, like the representation of folks on either side? I think a lot has changed about juvenile court since the 90s. One of the things is that we now know more about the adolescent brain and adolescent development than we ever did. The research has grown exponentially over the last 25 years. And what we know is that adolescents are resilient, right? Adolescents, because of their impulsivity and sensation seeking and vulnerability to peer influences, all the things that I talked about earlier, that they are less culpable, if you will, than adults. And so as a result, several things. Juvenile crime has gone down considerably. We've abolished juvenile death penalty. So we no longer, you know, kill kids for, for crimes in the country. One of the last countries to, to abolish that. So we've got all of these sort of developments. But if I hear you correctly, the question of balance, what has not changed is racial disparities. As juvenile crime and juvenile referrals to the court have gone down considerably over the last 40 years, the racial disparities have only grown. And so I think that is a really important takeaway from a conversation like that. Even as we learn to treat children like children more than we did initially, we still demonize and fear, penalize and criminalize Black children. That's interesting. Yeah, I didn't know that. There are just as many Black and Brown kids that are being tried in juvenile court as there were even with a greater understanding that we have of, of how people behave at a younger age, young person, your brain's not done yet, you know? Yes, that we get that for, for white children, but we don't get that for black children. And you could see, I mean, and, and I'll tell you that at that deep end of the system, we talk about the transfer of children to adult court the imposition of life without the possibility of parole sentences, those severe sentences, you see the most drastic racial disparities at that end of the system, right? They, they permeate from the racial disparities are evident from arrest, pretrial detention, guilt or innocence phase, but they are even more pronounced at that back end stage, the trying and prosecution of children as adults and at the severe sentencing. And that's what's so incredibly disturbing, like this notion that we would recognize that children are children and their brains are still cooking, as you said, but we can't see it for black kids. And that's the heart of what dehumanization means, right? That's exactly what it means. I can't even see you as a person, more or less as a child.
You're listening to Unequal Justice on Making Contact. This show is offered for free to stations across the country and around the world. For information about this and other episodes, check out our website at radioproject.org. We'll be right back with more from Dr. Chris Henning on her book, The Rage of Innocence, How America Criminalizes Black Youth. How is it different for black girls as opposed to black boys? It's a great question, Monica. I, in my book, The Rage of Innocence, How America Criminalizes Black Youth, I go out of my way to interweave stories about black girls throughout. And I remember someone asking me as I started writing the book, oh, you're going to have a chapter on girls. And I thought about it and I was like, well, actually, no, I want to tell the story simultaneously for a lot of reasons. One is that I want folks to remember that, yes, we spend a lot of time in the news and the media talking about the criminalization of black boys, but that black girls are suffering the same way. And so what do I mean by that? I mean that the stereotypes and um, narratives and tropes about blackness and criminality apply to girls. There are some nuances for sure, and I highlight some of those. And some of those nuances include ways in which black girls are perceived to be sexually promiscuous, right? And the other tropes are that black girls are more mature, less innocent, less in need of protection, more knowledgeable about adult-like subjects, including sex. And so that's one piece. I wanted to show that the narratives and the tropes were still the same. I also wanted to show in the book that the trauma that arises from the criminalization of Black youth, the over-policing and hyper-surveillance of Black youth in our country is just as traumatic for Black and Brown girls. The trauma arises not only from being the direct target of those police encounters, but also from witnessing it hearing about it from friends and family and people that you're close to. So that's another aspect of it. Another aspect of it is the sort of the collateral consequences. What does it mean to grow up in a a black or brown community that is criminalized? It means that you are often going to suffer from the loss of siblings, the loss of uncles and fathers as a result of this criminalization and aggressive policing. So I do talk about the unique ways in which Black girls are criminalized. You see a lot of the criminalization of Black girls in the school context, right? Black girls are 3.6 times more likely to be arrested at school than white girls. That's a huge disparity, right? Black girls are also much more likely to be disciplined for clothing violations, you know, the way they style their hair or wearing clothes that the teachers presume to be too tight, those kinds of things. So there's some differences, but there are a lot of similarities too. One of the things that really struck me was the almost everyday activities that boys and girls were criminalized or arrested for. And I'm wondering if you could just run through some of those examples. 
Absolutely. I ask people often, think about what you cared about when you were a teenager. And people invariably talk about, I cared about the clothes that I wore. I cared about the friends I sat with in the cafeteria, the music that I listened to, the parties that I got invited to, the way I my hair looked on a particular day. All of those things are what teenagers then and today care about. And now we add social media. <laughs> what do my friends think of me on social media? You add that today. And think about what we did. You could pick any one of those topics, right? So think about music. We know that country, heavy metal, rock, pop, uh, music, all of those genres have uh, misogynistic, violent themes, drugs, alcohol, these genres certainly include that. And we don't demonize that music. But you talk about a black child listening to rap music and the, the black child is treated as the most dangerous child alive. And that rap music is the most dangerous music alive. People have been killed, black children have been killed, you know, for listening to, to, to rap music. That's a problem. Think about clothing. Remember, harken back to the hippie era, tie-dye t-shirts and bell bottoms, which were associated with hallucinogens and marijuana. And we didn't criminalize the tie-dye t-shirt or the bell bottom. Think about the all black attire and the straight black hair that was associated with the goth era and also associated with the mass shootings, right? We haven't criminalized that. Think about today, Doc Martens, steel-toed Doc Martens with red shoelaces that have been associated by, you know, by their own groups, you know, with white supremacy. And we've never criminalized that. This is really important. The only clothing item that's been officially criminalized on the books, on the criminal code, is like the sagging pants. There's been this whole movement across the country of trying to elect more progressively minded district attorneys. And you do a lot of traveling yourself, teaching, and maybe you can talk about more about what you do. Several things. You know, when I think about solutions, I want to start by saying we have to radically reduce the presence of police officers in the lives of all children and especially black and brown children who are so disproportionately targeted. We as a society have really sort of bought into this idea, this real false premise that the only way to keep our country safe is through traditional law enforcement responses. So that's number one. So how does one you know, radically reduce the presence of police? That means decriminalizing certain behaviors for adolescents, right? Everything from disorderly conduct to disturbing schools to sagging pants, things of that nature. And even recognizing that even some adolescent behaviors result in very serious outcomes, but they were still adolescent impulsivity, silliness, foolishness that just got out of control. And that we need to acknowledge that, whereas we, we acknowledge that for white kids, we need to acknowledge that for black kids. You know, that's a piece. I believe in police-free schools. That's another way to radically reduce the presence of police in the lives of children. That's not that radical as it sounds <laughs> at all. That does not mean that we wouldn't have police when we need them for safety. It's just that they're not there to do routine 
routine discipline. So that's one whole piece. The other piece that you talk about, you got us into sort of progressive prosecution movement. It's a really good point is also this notion of gatekeeping. So, you know, when we talk about Eric's case, the one that I told you all about the Molotov cocktail, it was not just that the school resource officer was present, searched his bag and did not give him the benefit of the doubt when he said, here, throw it in the trash can. I'm going on to class, right? There's no way there's anybody at danger. You have the glass bottle um, and there's nothing that's going to blow that up at all. So there's that issue. But then beyond that, he got arrested at school and sent to court. And then what happens in court? The prosecutor prosecuted that case and continued to pursue that case for nine months, right? Despite expert evidence and um, evidentiary hearings and defense argument about why this was just such an abuse of the judicial system. This is not what we should be using the system for. And so there is this growing body of progressive prosecutors that I am actually quite pleased to see the efforts that they're making. And, and some of that is thinking about alternatives to public safety, but more important, declining to prosecute cases that do not belong in, for example, the juvenile court. We need folks who are courageous. So you asked about what I do as a part of my work at the Georgetown Juvenile Justice Clinic and initiative. I do trainings all across the country for all of the stakeholder groups, judges, prosecutors, defense attorneys, probation officers, even police officers, right? So my conversation is not at all meant to be an anti-police conversation. It's just meant to be, how do we think differently? My conversations include helping us acknowledge the ways in which we criminalize normal adolescent behaviors. It's getting folks to understand how implicit racial bias operates in the system, causing us to see black children as older and more dangerous and more threatening than they actually are. It includes a full recognition of the traumatic effects historical and contemporary of police relationships with the black community. And what does that mean for adolescent behaviors and adolescent responses to the police? Things of that nature as a part of the broader effort to shift how we respond to black children. My ultimate goal in all of that work and in the book is to really encourage, urge, plead with folks to treat black children like children too. So you mentioned that, you know, one of the other things is to educate people about the full extent of the traumatic effects of adolescent responses to police trauma and the trauma of being handcuffed at nine years old. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that. There is a growing body of research documenting the extraordinary psychological trauma that black and brown children, Latino in particular, children experience in contact with the police. The research shows that black and brown children who live in heavily surveilled neighborhoods, who are the target of frequent stops and frisk, report high rates of fear, anxiety, depression, hopelessness, they become hypervigilant, which just means that they're always 
on guard, not trusting the police. And what's really sad is that distrust of the police transfers over to other adult authority figures, right? Like teachers, counselors, folks who might be a, a real ally for the child. As I noted a little earlier, the trauma occurs not just from being the direct target, but from witnessing it. One of the um, most important things that happens during our adolescent years is what they call adolescent identity formation. That's really all about how you think about yourself, what you think you can become, and how you interrelate with other people in society. I talk about the book is The Rage of Innocence. And that rage is, one, it's the rage that all of us should have anytime any one child is deprived of an opportunity to be a child. But it also has other layers of meaning. And one of those layers is it is the rage that black children have when they're told over and over again that they're criminal, that they're a threat, that they are to be feared, that they are to be excluded. You push back on those labels. And as a teenager, you don't say, oh, Mr. Officer, I don't like the way you're treating me. <laughs> Instead, you respond like a teenager. You're impulsive. You're emotional. You're a fairness fanatic. A fairness fanatic. So we, we need to just be thoughtful about the ways in which the history and the trauma impact that police encounter with a young person. And remember that the blue uniform carries with it that history of oppression in American society, even when an individual officer means well, even when an individual officer wants to engage kindly with a young person. So we have to ask ourselves, you know, look, you know, the adults just have to be the adults and, and meet the child where they are. You've been listening to Dr. Chris Henning discussing her book, The Rage of Innocence, How America Criminalizes Black Youth. And a quick announcement. This is my final show as a producer at Making Contact. And I wanted to take a moment to thank everybody that I've had the opportunity to work with on this show. It's been an amazing experience. That also means that Making Contact is looking for new producers. So check out our website for all the details. That's radioproject.org. The Making Contact team is Jessica Partnow, Anita Johnson, Salima Hamorani, Sabine Blazin, and I'm Monica Lopez. Thanks for listening to Making Contact. The views expressed on this program are those of the guests and not necessarily the views of management and staff of OBS Radio, OBS International, and Greater Works Business Services. Guests who appear on this podcast are not required to pay a fee and is made possible by RadioGuestList.com. For more information, please visit our website at www.obsintl.cf. Follow OBS on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash Broadcast section. If you want to contribute financially to help us continue broadcasting, please go to paypal.me.obsintl. Thanks for tuning in. We will see you next time. This is OBS Radio, a service of OBS International, a division of Greater Works Business Services.